Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at o'connellcoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, Joshua Ramey. For those who don't know, Joshua is a writer, teacher, and activist who studies political economy and anti-capitalist political theory. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Villanova University and is currently visiting assistant professor in the interdisciplinary Concentration in Peace, Justice, and Human Rights at Haverford College. He is also the author of The Hermetic Deleuze, Philosophy and Spiritual Ordeal, and Politics of Divination, Neoliberal Endgame, and the Religion of Contingency. Josh, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks, Matthew. Great to be here. Thank you. Good. So let's start off with the the first insight question. How did you get involved with insight seminars? I first saw the name of the outfit on social media. I think it was must have been on Facebook because a couple of friends of mine uh, had been teaching for them already. My friend Gabriel Rockhill and another friend of mine, uh, Anthony Paul Smith, they've both given seminars for Insight. So I think that that just showed up in my in my feed and, and I was curious about it and dug a little deeper and found out who Glenn Wallace was, who's the, the, the organizer and convener of the seminars, uh, who uh, your audience knows well, I'm sure. I have been living in Philadelphia for most of the last 18 years. So normally I'm pretty hip to what's going on here. But from 2014 to 2017, I had been teaching out of a school in, in Iowa, out at Grinnell College. So I had lost track a little bit of movements on the ground here. But I, I came out of that position when I, uh, when I let go of it was partly because I wanted to start getting into more uh, alternative forms of 
higher education, more community-based education, non-traditional, whatever you want to call it. And I was experimenting with that quite a bit myself. So I was sort of on the lookout for this kind of thing. And then when based on, um, yeah, what I saw some friends of mine doing, um, reached out to Glenn and uh, it turned out that he had actually read one of my books, my my Deleuze book, and was really interested in working with me. So it all came together after that pretty quickly. Cool. I mentioned some of your professional background. Um, What have you been teaching in Iowa? Was it philosophy or something else? A lot of my teaching has become uh, much more interdisciplinary than it started out. I mean, my PhD is in philosophy. I wrote a doctoral thesis on the work of, of Gilles Deleuze and, you know, was coming out of grad school teaching pretty standard repertoire of courses in uh, the history of philosophy, topical areas of philosophy, aesthetics, ethics, and political philosophy. But uh, after the financial crisis in 2008, I, I began to get more and more interested in political economy. And my research became a lot more interdisciplinary, studying history of economics, a lot of sociology, social theory. I've always been heavily invested in religious studies as well. So my teaching at, at Grinnell in Iowa was in the philosophy uh, department, but some of my courses were fairly interdisciplinary, particularly my my philosophies of capitalism class and my my class on the nature of money, which is in the in the background definitely of the the seminar that I'm going to be doing for Insight that we can talk about in a minute. But but yeah, I mean I've been teaching now since 2000. Six. I've been teaching full time, mainly in philosophy. But the nice thing about being in philosophy is you you can really do um, a pretty broad range of things. And in my case, you know, because of the interdisciplinary of my nature of my research, you know, I've been teaching a pretty wide range of of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What standout questions are driving your your personal and professional inquiry at present? I can go back to what I just said a minute ago, which was that the financial crisis of 2008, an enormous event in my life, as I think it was for a lot of people, um, it really, really changed my perspective on everything. I mean, I, I think I had come out of graduate school as a sort of cultural Marxist, uh, you know, basically post-structuralist political philosopher, thinking a lot about capitalism as a, as a, as a culture and a form of life. And in particular, I was really interested in the sort of religious dimensions of uh, what's supposed to be a secular worldview under late modern globalizing, you know, capitalist culture. But I was raised in in an intensely religious environment. My father was a preacher and all the men on both sides of my family were preachers going back a couple of generations. So I'm kind of hardwired to view the world religiously. And I was also very sensitive to the way in which a certain kind of evangelical Protestantism in particular was was deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in the framework of capitalism as a as a cultural phenomenon. Obviously, something that you know Max Weber wrote about in uh, the early 20th century, but was also something that I I lived, I think, in a particularly intense way. As I said, I was I was already kind of a cultural Marxist and a cultural critic of capital, and, and being very much in the tutelage of thinkers like Gilles Deleuze and Michel Foucault, Georges Bataille, and the Collège de Sociologie, uh, heavily influenced by psychoanalytical theory, and growing up with as much religion and theology as I had, I was, um, you know, coming at the critique of, of capitalism from a, in a certain ideological way. But after 2008, I, I really felt like uh, something like a kind of crack opened in the veil, the, the veil became thin around the nature of money and the power of finance. Which in some ways I, f- I feel like a lot of us in the academy just assumed was something that was beyond our ability to to critique. It was this kind of self-perpetuating, self-replicating system 
there just wasn't really wasn't very much critical analysis of finance coming out of the humanities until after 2008. And then, of course, a lot of us started paying a lot more attention. And I would say, yeah, for the last 10 years or so, I've been thinking almost obsessively about money and about the particular power that finance capital has and, you know, basically trying to give myself a kind of second <laughs> postgraduate education in economic theory and economic history to try to try to wrestle with what's going on. But um, I also have been heavily steeped in, in anthropological theory and, and the social theory of money, because I, I think in a lot of ways, the economics professor and discipline of economics is, is really, in many ways, set against understanding what money is and how, how it functions, which is uh, something that, that requires a really kind of multidisciplinary approach. And it's really the thing I've been thinking about the most, I would say, for the last seven or eight years. And it was very much part of the deep background of the book I wrote on on neoliberalism. I want to make one thing clear, which is that it, it really was much more than a merely intellectual exercise for me because the the financial crisis really destroyed the academic job market as as I was coming into it. And, you know, led me to spend about about seven and a half or eight years trying to find a, a decent position in the academy. And then when I did, it was, you know, a thousand miles away from my home and, and my family life in Philadelphia, um, which really made what otherwise would have been a really great job. I had a great school, basically just unworkable for me. So I've now been, you know, moved out or moved into something much more more nebulous in terms of employment and prospects and so on. So it's something I've been living as well as thinking about. And you're actually doing two events for Insight. The first one is a, a one-day event called Money and Metaphysics, which is on the 19th of January. And then you're doing a series of events on debt, justice, and sovereignty in February, if I'm not mistaken. No, that's still January, uh, for Tuesday, starting on the 22nd. So what, what sort of challenges do you think these two events are going to bring up for those coming along? There's probably at least two. I mean, one is that the nature of, of money and the nature of indebtedness, which are the, the two topics that we're going to be exploring, are things that seem to be very familiar to us because we're, we're all swimming in debt and we're all really, our lives are spent swimming in a sea of money. But nevertheless, why money is structured and functions the way it is and why, why debt is actually structured and functions the way it does are deeply, deeply obscure to us in everyday life. They're not only things that are difficult to think about, they're, they're things that I think we very often don't even want to think about because we're afraid of, in some ways, afraid of, of what we might find out. I think rightly so, because what you very quickly confront is that money and debt are, are power relations, and they're presented as if they're mere sort of technical or even mechanical processes that are, in some sense, supposed to be like you know neutral tools or value-neutral technologies that are supposedly part of what we think is, quote-unquote, democratic even about a capitalist society, that people can make money in various ways, people can get access to credit in various ways, and it has this feeling of being a social benefit that these these things are out there. But then why exactly they work, through, they work the way they do, why some people have access to credit or, or to money for that matter rather than others, what the value of money is actually supposed to represent, what it does represent, why the terms of, of loans are written, how they are, and uh, who benefits in the way they do. These are all profoundly charged questions. And the two challenges are on the one hand, 
understanding the way that money and debt actually work is already difficult. And then there's a secondary challenge of confronting why they are set up the way they are, why money is what it is or why debt what it is is what it is today poses almost a kind of existential or, or spiritual challenge to take on because most people are somewhere between totally confused and totally outraged once they find out that the things don't necessarily have to be the way they are. Money does not have to be the kind of thing that it is for us. It's been something different in the past. It could be in the future, and especially indebtedness. It's shameful that we that many of us can't renegotiate uh, our debts when we, we'd like to be able to and probably arguably should be able to do so. In, in addition to a kind of merely intellectual problem around these issues, there's a, there's a kind of psychic or spiritual or existential one as well that takes a certain amount of courage and solidarity to face. That's what I try to offer anyway when I bring people together around these matters. So which particular figures and texts have been key in exploring this topic? I think the the book that was most important to me early on and is still deeply inspiring is David Graeber's uh, 2011 book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which is not only a, a history of debt and different ways that debt has been understood for 5,000 years now, but also is a is a very interesting history of money that refutes a lot of the myths that are told about money, the, the main one being that money somehow fundamentally originates in a kind of barter situation, that money is a sort of shorthand for some kind of trading that we would like to do, but is somehow inconvenient. And so therefore, you know, money comes along to make barter or facilitate barter-like exchanges uh, may make those things easier. In fact, there's no historical evidence that money ever emerged out of a barter-like situation. All of the uh, evidence that we have archaeologically, anthropologically, historically points to the emergence of money from credit systems, primarily informal credit systems between people in relatively small communities who were quite familiar with one another and used certain kinds of units of account in some cases to keep track of um, certain kinds of obligations that they had to one or certain kinds of debt so that the, 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 the deep origin of money is a kind of accounting of credit and debt. Which is not something, again, that uh, economists like to think about because for them, what an economy really is, is a system of exchange. They'd really like to think about the economy without thinking of money at all. And this is why there's so little theorizing of what money is from within economics. Graeber's book was very instrumental to me. And the, the, another reason why it was so important was that he, re he writes a lot about how and why human beings have tended to confuse economic debts on the one hand and social obligations generally on, on the other. You know, we talk about our obligations to one another in terms of debt. You know, I owe you one. I'm good for it. We say, you know, when, when we do something for someone else that we might think needs to be uh, reciprocated at some point down the line. Graeber makes a really powerful case that specifically monetary debts are actually very different from it and quite predatory on and really corrosive of the way that human obligations work in a much more general sense, even though many of the world's religious traditions also talk about our obligations to one another and even to the divine in terms of debt and indebtedness. He argues that this is very much a kind of accommodation to a, a world that has been already kind of decimated by the, the violence of debt and the, the ability of creditors to demand repayment. He does a really good job, I think, of arguing that we should really rethink all this, and rethink our language, because the kinds of obligations that we have to one another that matter most really can never be repaid. You know, I could never imagine 
asking my son, for instance, to reciprocate to me what, what I've done for him. I, I would never dream of trying to quantify that or ask him to pay me back unless maybe he was in trouble and then I was punishing him for something, you know, which is an interesting point because a lot of the earliest monetary records that we have, in fact, were, were fines or, and penalties that were charged to people for damages uh, of one sort or another. So there's an incredible kind of history of violence behind how we speak about our obligations to one another um, in terms of debt and indebtedness. And Graver's work really uh, opened that up for me. And it's still one of the main, the main texts that I use um, when I teach these things. You mentioned a point that might be worth saying just a little bit more about, which was this uncomfortable relationship on the part of, the, say, the academic world and its relationship with money. Um, but you've also mentioned metaphysics, the religious and the spiritual. And as you're most likely aware, I mean, although there's, there's this sort of neoliberal current to a lot of Western alternative spiritual practice, that doesn't necessarily def define or limit all forms of, of alternative Western spirituality. And I think in those circles of, let's say, slightly less less polluted by neoliberal ideological spaces, I think those kinds of groups and people are still challenged by the whole concept of money, of value, and of worth. Um, can you speak to that much? Can you speak to that discomfort? Uh, it seems to me that we, we in this age we live in right now, we're sort of obliged to some degree to educate ourselves about a whole set of areas which once upon a time we could have possibly ignored. And I think I could have taken out the word academic and replaced it with spiritual person, and the sentence would have remained the same. Would you agree with that? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, definitely. I mean, this is something I I think about a lot. In particular, I think about neo-shamanic revival, which you know is something I'm invested in and working within in some ways in my own in my own life. But you know, I think a lot about the irony of traditional shamanic healing techniques being extracted from cultural settings in which they were taught and learned by people who were recognized as being in some sense called or even obliged to carry those medicines on behalf of the people in the community and those techniques being sort of taken out and then taught in seminars or workshops or whatever to to westerners paying you know thousands and thousands of dollars to consume or appropriate these things or take them as tools or techniques or whatever that by way of paying for them you, you go down the list you know whether people are paying for meditation workshops or yoga retreats or whatever it's very different from being able to say what to walk into a church for free or walk into a synagogue for free or you know being asked only to give what you can out of your income or whatever if you decide to become a, a member you know of the whatever it is the sangha or the sin or the, the community, religious community to go back to where you started i mean I, I think about why i'm asking myself these questions i didn't go to either college or graduate school wanting to have anything to do with economics i didn't want to think about money at all i was interested in rock and roll and philosophical ideas and basically in trying to you know be cool or whatever that meant it certainly didn't mean being a business person or having anything to do with money or any of this and and yeah i mean i i have felt more and more forced to think about these things over the course of my life. And I think in a way, there's something to it. I think that the commodification of everyday life, the commodification of reality itself in late stage capital, where it's very, very difficult to turn a rate of profit 
anymore uh, through manufacturing or through industrial capitalism in order to accumulate its everyday life itself, our entire attention spans, our desires, our affective needs, even our religious practices. It's something that we're all being forced into one way or another. I, I think it's an interesting challenge and also an opportunity in the sense that there's almost no way to escape the monetization of reality alone it has to be done in, in community if people are interested in trying to step into, you know, what David Harvey calls heterotopic spaces or spaces of collective and communal self-determination outside of the flows of financing. That can only be done in community and in groups of people. Um, and that, that in and of itself is interesting because I think that the only way for spiritual seekers, people who want to, you know, live very, very differently on, on this planet to do so is at this point is going to be to confront the true nature of money, which is that it emerges from a system of extraction that is it's incredibly violent and that is contaminating. And if we're serious about being people of whatever you want to call it, righteousness or the Dharma or living in the Tao or living in a holy way, whatever, whatever your vocabulary is, we're at a, a sort of crisis in history where there's no place to escape from the taint of money, unless it is really about experimenting with new forms of community and solidarity that reach very deeply into the material fabric of our lives themselves. I don't think we can do that alone. And I just, I don't think that spiritual technologies or spiritual techniques can give us an escape really from the horrors of the political economy we're living in. And maybe they shouldn't, maybe they shouldn't be able to, but that's sort of where my thinking is at at this point. Great. And people can come along and get involved in some of this sort of thinking. And I'm going to remind people of the date. So the first one is Money and Metaphysics. And that's on the 19th of January, the same location as always. That's in Philadelphia. And you can check out the Insight. That's I-N-C-I-T-E website. And that's a half day event. And in keeping with the themes you've just been describing, there's a suggested amount of $90 for the event, but there's a sliding scale. And if you're really skint, as we say in the UK, you can go along for free. The second event is four Tuesdays, January 22nd, 29th, February the 5th and the 12th. And those are evening events. So you can make it after work. Thank you, Joshua, uh, for coming on. And just so our audience knows, you and I will be having a, a proper interview and discussion about practice in 2019. But for now, people can come along and hear you in person at the Insight Seminars. Thanks for your time, Joshua. Thank you, Matthew. My pleasure.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.